This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfires Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You heard there a portion of Apple Blossom Round from John Luther Adams' album, Songbird Songs. Performers there were the Calithopian consort, Stephen Drury, director. John Luther Adams is a composer whose life and work are deeply rooted in the natural world. He was awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Music for his symphonic work, Become Ocean, and a 2015 Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. In Uxuit, his outdoor work for up to 99 percussionists is regularly performed all over the world. Columbia University has honored Adams with the William Schumann Award to recognize the lifetime achievement of an American composer whose works have been widely performed and generally acknowledged to be of lasting significance. The New Yorker's Alex Ross has called him one of the most original thinkers of the new century. A recipient of the Heinz Award for his contributions for raising environmental awareness, John Luther Adams has also been honored with the Nemers Prize from Northwestern University for melding the physical and musical worlds into a unique artistic vision that transcends stylistic boundaries. Adams grew up in the south and in the suburbs of New York City. He lived for many years in Alaska and now splits his time between New York City and the Mexican Pacific Coast. In the mid-1970s, John Luther Adams became active in the campaign for the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act and subsequently served as executive director of the Northern Alaska Environmental Center. Adams says he's proud of the achievements in protecting the environment that he was a part of, but that at a certain point in his life, he felt he needed to choose between being a full-time environmental activist and being a composer. He chose music. We're very pleased to welcome to Access Utah John Luther Adams. And uh, we welcome him to the program. John Luther Adams, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me, Tom. So you um, you spent many years in Alaska. What what drew you to Alaska? Boy, um, Alaska is in my home in the deepest sense. I wasn't born there, but uh, in a non-religious sense, I, you might say I was born again there. I went north when I was 22. I had grown up all over the country, and people would say, oh, I'm going home, and uh, I wouldn't know what they were talking about. Uh, I didn't really have a place that I knew of as home, a place to which I um, I felt I truly belonged. So after music school in Los Angeles, which made a composer and an environmentalist out of me, I went looking for home without fully understanding exactly what I was doing, but um, lucky for me, I... I found it. And from the moment I set foot uh, in Alaska, I knew that I had come home. What, what is it about Alaska? 
but for you? Oh, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of the same qualities that you have in Utah. Uh, my wife and I have spent a little time in the Red Rock country there, so I know what a magical uh, landscape that is. But to be a young person, this was the mid-1970s now, uh, we're talking about when I was 22, um, to be a young person in Alaska back then was just an exhilarating, uh, it was an extraordinary time and place. Um, there was a sense that we might be able to do things differently in Alaska to create really nothing less than a kind of model society, an ecotopian ideal of, um, of how we human animals might live more deeply in harmony with this beautiful planet that is our one and only home. You, uh, as a younger man, you were an environmental activist, and then you had to make a choice, right? Either I can do this or I can compose. You, you chose music. What was that transition like? Yeah, um, you know, I, I spent uh, most of my 20s and into my 30s as a full-time environmental activist, and I was involved in the uh, Alaska Lands Act, the single largest land conservation act in history. And if I never do anything else in my life, the, the bit part that I played in that noble crusade is, um, is deeply satisfying to me. But um, there came a time when I realized that I wasn't really cut out for a life in politics. Um, I just didn't have the temperament, quite frankly, the courage to uh, to continue as an as an activist. And so I, with the hubris of youth, decided that well, someone else could take my place in the crusade, but maybe no one else could write the music that I might that I might be able to discover. So I took that leap of faith and been trying to make good on it ever since. Um, and you, you've been known, and at least in part of your career, as creating musical landscapes. But I saw a presentation you gave. You, you, you say you're no longer interested in that specifically. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sort of probably talking out of both sides of my mouth. I mean, <laughs> look, I, I, I'm, I'm. Um, so maybe I was cut out for politics after all. Um, no, I, you know, uh, place is, is an obsessive um, metaphor and uh, just a, 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 an obsessive obsession <laughs> for my life and my life's work. I, I love places. Um, I love singular places, places that are themselves and nothing else, uh, whether, that's, um, whether that's Utah or Alaska or New York City in its own way. Um, so I'm still as, as, concerned with place as I ever was, but I'm no longer interested in painting musical landscapes of, of particular places. I'm more concerned with making musical landscapes, if you will, or, or evoking in, in music um, the, something like the presence of place. And in my outdoor pieces now, uh, works like Sila, The Breath of the World, the big symphonic piece to be performed outdoors, or Ixuit, the, 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 the big work for percussion to be played outdoors. Um, I'm, I'm viewing the music as a kind of uh, uh, call to attention, as a, 
as an invitation to listen more deeply to the never-ending music of place, wherever we may be. So it's no longer about a specific place. It's just about place. And it's about our place in the world and trying to to understand more deeply, pay pay closer attention to where we are, wherever that may be, and how we fit in. You've talked about the experience of experiencing your piece, Strange and Sacred Noise, which was uh-huh. uh, composed for the concert hall, right, of experiencing that outdoors. So could you tell me about that? I guess that led you to composing these pieces directly for the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, I'm a slow learner, you know, but um, I had this experience of, of hearing Strange and Sacred Noise outdoors. Strange and Sacred Noise is a concert-length work for percussion, and um, it celebrates noise in the elemental violence of nature. It celebrates noise as a gateway to altered states of consciousness, which it has been in music and cultures throughout the world, throughout history. You think of uh, Inupiat drumming or a peyote chant, or you think of the whirling dervishes or rock and roll. You know, it's, 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 it's all about... Um, noise as a vehicle to another mode of awareness. This piece was ex- was inspired by my experiences in Alaska. Um, it actually began on the banks of the Yukon River when I was camped uh, alone waiting for the ice to go out one year. Um, and um, I wanted to evoke in music something of that uh, transpersonal, purifying uh, violence of, of nature. You know, that feeling that the world is so much bigger and more powerful than we can understand, um, and our presence is is somehow essential and at the same time insignificant, inconsequential. Anyway, so all these big ideas and this big um, extended piece uh, inspired by the big world to be heard in the small world, <laughs> inside mm-hmm. the concert hall. Right. In fact, it depends on the four walls and the floor and the ceiling of a concert hall to kind of overwhelm us and immerse us in this, this, um, this un- envelope of, of broadband noise. So anyway, I, I, I went to this performance in the Anzaburgo Desert, uh, a group in Southern California, um, students of my friend Stephen Schick, the great percussionist, gave a performance out of the desert. And I settled in to experience my big, powerful piece in this big, powerful landscape. And within a few minutes, I was chastened, humbled, and provoked. Um, Here was this big noise that I thought I had made, 
And out there in the real world, in the big world, uh, uh, most of it just blew away in the wind. my aha moment uh, when I finally realized after 40 years of work that, oh, maybe it's time to to make music that's intended from the get-go to be heard outdoors. Mm. The result was Inuxlet, uh, the, the piece for up to 99 percussionists. And I've since done um, two or three other pieces, and I think this is going to be a continuing Concern. It's not the only thing I'm doing, but I'm, I love working outdoors. Could you tell me a little bit about Inuksuit? Uh, what, what, uh, what, first of all, what does, what does that word mean? Yeah, Inuksuit, um, Inuksuit are the stone figures, the stone sentinels, the sculptures, if you will, that the Inuit people have created uh, in the Arctic uh, all, all around the world for countless centuries. Uh, the greatest flowering of them is in uh, the Canadian Arctic. And literally, more or less literally, translated from the Inuktitut, the word means to act in the capacity of the human. So what that suggests is that these figures are markers of human presence in what appears to be a big, empty, lonely landscape. And um, so I took that as my point of departure for this first work um, to be performed outdoors. And I imagined each of the musicians, up to 99, as a singular presence in that vast landscape. There's no concerted playing. Everybody is a soul. Each one of the musicians has a unique part. And I imagine the same thing for the listeners. Um, this is a piece that um, is so big that it may not be possible for you to hear all of it at once. And there is no best seat in the house from which to hear Inuksalit. Uh, you can sit in one place, and burrow in and let the music float and revolve and expand around you, or you can follow your ears and and walk. And um, everyone's experience of the music is unique.
know, I, in my misanthropic <laughs> Alaskan way, imagined that this was a piece that was all about solitude. Uh, well, a trick on me. It turned out that it's a piece that's all about community. Uh, from the shared experience of all these solitary performers and listeners emerges this extraordinary sense of being in something together, being part of a community that is larger than we are. Yeah, it's extraordinary. By the way, I have to ask, parenthetically, are Alaskans misanthropic? Um, that would be one of, of many pejorative adjectives <laughs> to describe us. Okay. <laughs> and and embrace it, I'm sure, yes. It's, it's as big a wide-open yeah, country. That's, that's, a really, that's the sad part of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you were, I think you watched the presentation, you were talking about Sela, the breath of the world. Um, uh-huh. You said you learned a lot about polyphony with you know, making music outdoors. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, you know, there's a wonderful uh, Canadian poet, uh, Robert Bringhurst. He's also a linguist and some kind of um, uh, student of, of, of Native um, cultures, um, Simpson culture in particular, um, uh, the coastal people in British Columbia. And um, he speaks, Bringhurst speaks of polyphony as the, the, the collection, uh, it really goes back to its roots, not, it, not, not, its, uh, not in the specifically musical sense that we think of, you know, a Bach fugue as counterpoint, although I love Bach fugues as much as the next guy. Um, but polyphony as m- simply many voices, a community, uh, uh, if you will, an ecology of voices. And I was quite intrigued by that and experienced it uh, when, I, when I first um, heard Enuxuit, and I'm still exploring that notion of polyphony. I, uh, I also, it's interesting, I, I, I always used to laugh at a sort of snicker in my young, rebellious um, way. Uh, I would sort of say, oh yeah, polyphony. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm all about sonority, I'm all about sound. But it, it's ironic that now as I'm into my 60s and I'm working outdoors and I'm writing finally string quartets, which surprises me, I'm engaged with polyphony, with, with uh, contrapuntal lines in um, a, a, a relatively um, familiar musical sense, although the sounds are different. I, I'm, 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 I'm making counterpoint. But then I'm also exploring polyphony in this much broader, you might say, ecological sense in the outdoor pieces. I watched a video, at least a portion of the video, of, of uh, I think it was a performance of Sela, The Breath of the World. It was in a city, in a park, I think, with a, with a fountain. Some of the performers were calf-deep in water. And, and yeah, that there, that there is Lincoln Center, so I'm here in New York City. Okay, and it was <laughs> it was a tremendous. It was just just the visual of it was was spectacular. Isn't that that, the, yeah, you know, here's here's the thing, Tom. I I hated that site. It was commissioned by my my good friend Jane Moss, who's who's a sort of the Queen Bee, um, brilliant curator um, at Lincoln Center. And she commissioned this piece for the Lincoln Center Festival. And I kept, uh, I kept pleading, Jane, 
couldn't we, I, I don't like the Lincoln Center campus. It's sterile. It's, you know, couldn't we just go across the street and, 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 and do this thing in Central Park? And she said, you know, very sweetly, well, this is not the Central Park Festival. This is the Lincoln Center Festival. <laughs> and how could I argue with that? So um, I finally, I walked into that area, um, to that particular plaza area of Lincoln Center one day with a chip on my shoulders about, well, how are we going to make this thing work in here? It's awful. I don't like the site. What are we going to do? And I stopped and I looked and I, and I said, you know, the problem with this site is there's no center. That, that damn reflecting pool is in the center. And then in the next breath, I thought, well, of course, the solution, the only solution is uh, we have to put musicians in, in, the, in the water. And so the obvious choice then was we put the singers in the water. And, and so we did. And everybody, including the singers, seemed to love it. <laughs> The singers are singing through uh, you know, megaphones, cones, I guess, and, uh, and yeah. the audience is kind of intermixed with the musicians.
the other factor here in the concert hall, you know, you've got control. Maybe somebody coughs, right. but but in right. that setting, you've got cars driving by and, and sounds of nature. I guess that is that uh, that's part of the music. That's part of the performance. That's the point. That's exactly the point of of Inoxulid, of Sila, of, of um, a new piece called Across the Distance. They're all about, it's, again, it's a kind of call and response. You might even say a, a, a sort of polyphony uh, between the music of, of um, the composition, the, the, the music that, um, you know, that I've composed that the musicians are playing, and the never-ending uh, uh, larger music of the place within which it's performed. And those boundaries are porous. Um, it's it the, the the music emerges out of the place, and at the end, um, it, it it very slowly dissolves back into the surroundings, into the environment. And there's this beautiful sense that um, that I've experienced, and a number of people have, have spoken about, of um, at the end of a performance of, of Sila or Inuksulit, feeling the, the 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 breath of the world sort of rise up. It's almost as though somebody's sitting at a big mixing board, fading the music down and fading the place up. This extraordinary thing happens, and, 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 and my hope is that we leave with, uh, with our ears more open, more, more deeply and broadly attuned to the place. Mm-hmm. Again, wherever the place is. Wherever the place is, Wherever yeah. these performances happen. Mm-hmm. And, and both these pieces, Sila, and Inuksuit are performed now all the time all over the world. They've taken on a life of their own, which um, quite independent of the composer, which makes the composer very happy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, okay. The, the, they they take they maybe they see something or hear something in the music that you didn't that you hadn't heard. That is nothing makes me happier. Yeah, that's that's the idea. That's my uh, that's one of my greatest joys when somebody else takes the music, whether a performing musician or or a listener and makes it their own and discovers something that I had no idea was there. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is composer John Luther Adams. He was awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Music for his symphonic work, Become Ocean. In Ixuit, his outdoor work for up to 99 percussionists is regularly performed all over the world. Of course, he is a composer for many other compositions. And uh, we're very pleased to have him with us uh, for the hour. Uh, Coming up, part two of our conversation, we'll, of course, hear more of his music, more conversation. And in the second half of the program, we'll talk about John Cage, influential composer, including uh, influential on John Luther Adams, and much more to talk about, of course, following this brief break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. USU entomologist Diane Alston says biorational approaches to integrated pest management are viable alternatives to harmful pesticides. Such approaches use a combination of insect growth regulation, conservation of biological agents, and the application of microbial insecticides. These, as well as insect attractants and repellents, affect insects' communication systems. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. (laughs) 